Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Now in the latter half of this episode, we're going to be reviewing the incredible X-Force Minus One from Marvel's 1997 Flashback Month event. But first, I am so honored and thrilled to be welcoming Jed McKay back to the show. Uh, Jed was on our show last year. Dayspring and I got to talk to him a lot about Black Cat and Moon Knight. And now uh, his career is exploding in ever new exciting ways as his name continues to rise. Jed, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the summer. It's raining more than it should be. It's hotter than it should be, but uh, we're, we're getting through it. You are currently writing Doctor Strange and mm-hmm. Moon Knight, and now mm-hmm. The Avengers. My first question for you is, how do you fit all this in into <laughs> one month? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I like to stay busy. Um, and, you know, I have a mortgage, so uh, I gotta, if you know, these books don't get written, then uh, I lose my house. So that's kind of, that's, you know, one of the real motivators there. How do you organize writing three distinctly different books with different tones, different feels, different casts? How do you organize your writing or your professional schedule? Do you do one book a week? Do you move back and forth between scripts? Um, no, I generally, like I don't have a particular set schedule on uh, or like set rate uh, at which I want to get a script out. It's more, I mean, the, the whole thing is just what artist needs to be fed first. Um, you know, who's finished their last script and who's ready for a new one. Because, you know, one of the, the cardinal sins of comic collaboration is leaving someone waiting for you. Um, you know, the more time I take to write a script, the less time an artist has to draw it. Sure. And of the two jobs, one of those is a lot harder than the other. It's not, you know, writing. <laughs> so the the main focus is to try to be you know, a good collaborator and make sure everyone's got something to work on. Um then as for that, it's just kind of which, however those deadlines line up, that's what happens next. So you know, sometimes, you know, I've written two scripts in a week before, uh, and then maybe I'll write a script for like the next week or two. Uh, it all just kind of depends on what's required, and you know, sometimes just like how easy it is. Like sometimes you've got one story more zeroed in than another. And, you know, sometimes some stories need more work or more kind of like. Um, you know, percolating to do before they're ready to go. So yeah, it's it's something that's not particularly organized, but ultimately everything gets done. How many hours a day do you write? I mean, it varies from day to day, right? You know, some days I'll I'll get up and write all day. Some days I won't write at all. Um it's it's pretty haphazard. Um like for the most part, you know, I get most of my work done probably between lunch and supper and then you know after dinner as well the morning gets pretty busy you know i get up i take the dog out for his walk you know take a shower 
by then, you know, he's kind of starting to get ready for, you know, lunch is getting pretty close. So maybe we'll figure out what's for lunch and that kind of thing. And so after lunch is sorted and that's kind of like really when I can really uh, gear down and get stuff done. I also consider myself uh, a writer. Uh, I write a lot of content for this show, uh, sure. but I also do a lot of personal writing. I've got graphic novel scripts and memoirs and different things. I've done a documentary. Mm-hmm. I find when I'm actively working on a project, whenever I'm walking the dog or hanging with the kids or sipping coffee in the shop, my mm-hmm. brain is working on the story pretty constantly. Is that a is that something you have happened for you? Oh yeah, no, for sure. Um, it's to the point where a couple of years ago when I was working. When I began to work steadily in comics, uh, I had to stop listening to podcasts when I was walking the dog because I realized that I used that time, you know, like for an hour or so every morning, to just kind of like be, uh, it's like a rock grinder, you know, a rock polisher rather, you know, it just, you're just rolling stuff around in your head until finally you get something, you know, semi-precious. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of start to realize that I need that time where I'm not, you know, listening to something or my attention isn't on anything else. And, you know, walking the dog is, is a perfect time for that. You know, I've gotten a lot of, a lot of stuff that's on page now, uh, began as an idle consideration. When I was out on the trail with the dog. You are a master at one of my favorite tropes in comics. We got to talk a little bit about this in your initial interview with me. We talked about eight ball and wax man, crazy characters, but you have this way, particularly in moon Knight, but also in the other books you're writing of building a plot, building a story. And then the big reveal is some random throwaway Marvel villain from many years ago that you're bringing back in some bold, incredible way. <laughs> and I'm I'm like a walking encyclopedia for this shit, but you pick characters that I'm like, wait a minute, where is this guy from? Like Sarnak. <laughs> I had to go look up Sarnak. Uh, yeah. I did remember the Harlequin, Harlequin Hitman, which I'm mm-hmm, like, yeah. what? How yeah. do you choose these characters that you want to uh, to draw upon? And what is it about this uh, this love of the company history for you that makes you want to tell these stories with these obscure villains? Um, in like so, I I'm just kind of go searching for them. So I'm always trawling like through the uh, you know the wikis, the fan wikis, and stuff like that for just characters that you know have an interesting name or an interesting look, or like as in the case of Waxman, I'm looking i'm looking at a list of um characters with the same tag you know i was like i need a shapeshifter so we'll see what the guy for shapeshifters and wax man came up on like perfect it's that's what i can use um you know otherwise i'm always interested in lists that people make uh you know because kind of like clickbait uh one of the 10 weirdest marvel villains uh and i'm like oh okay we'll see what they got see if there's anything good um but in other case sometimes just books I've, i've you know been reading or read um sarnak you know came from when we did the moon knight um uh, annual with uh werewolf by night mm-hmm. so i was doing a bunch of werewolf by night reading and i came across sarnak and i was like man this guy's got a really sick look his mask is awesome and i just kind of like tucked away in my back pocket and, you know somewhere in my notes i'm like sarnak as a dj uh at like uh you know a club or a rave or an event and I was like, okay, well, you know, that could be like a backup or maybe a one shot. I don't know. I don't like, I, I had no place for it. And then gradually as the story was started coming together for like this last, uh, or this latest 12 issue arc, I'm like, okay, well, there you go. Now I see where Sarnak fits in and I see how he plugs into the, the larger story because it's just all, you know, since issue 19, we've been 
doing a lot of kind of here and there and disparate sort of stuff, but it's it's tying together now as we uh, get towards the end game of the story. And you know that's that's where we see someone like Sarnak or um, you know the Harlequin hitmen who are just they're kind of a perfect character because they're a street level character, but also very weird and odd. Like they're more like you know characters you start to see on like you know the Stephen Peel Avengers TV show or something where they're just a husband and wife who both have a 38 but they've also got like you know masks and those great uh you know Ditko suits and trilbies and stuff yeah uh i mean waxman we talked we talked about waxman and eight ball and andrea sturman last time and like a lot of these incredible characters your use of the house of shadows is so fun Mm. uh as the midnight mission uh, my personal prediction in your Moon Knight work is that Dr. Robert Plesko is the Black Spectre, but that has not yet been revealed, and you do not need to comment, but I can see it building in that <laughs> sure. direction as you use this character along with uh, Zodiac. It's really building to something incredible. Uh, good, good work, man. It's fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty, uh, very happy with it. Moon Knight is a book that has been much more successful than uh, I certainly would anticipate. Um, I mean, you always want your books to do well, but the kind of bare minimum you're hoping for is that they just don't get canceled. Uh, so Moon Knight doing so well, you know, critically and commercially, I think it's been, um, it's been great. It's been a great surprise. And I'm really happy to see it. And I'm really happy to see it too for, you know, Alessandro and Federico, who I think it's both their first Marvel book. So, um, you know, being able to see such success in a book like that for an artist, I think is great. I mean, you've clearly done your research. Uh, you brought fucking Commodore Planet back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that was an easy one. So if you go looking for a list of like Moon Knight enemies, it's shockingly short. Um, and, you know, not a whole lot of memorable, you know, no, no one's really clamoring for the return of like Dead Zone, you know. Or like Stained Glass Scarlet. <laughs> well, no, I mean, no, people love Stained Glass Scarlet. Oh, yeah, she's, she's good. Don't get me wrong. She's, uh, she's an iconic Moon Knight villain. She's certainly, she's head and shoulders above Dead Zone. Or like, you know, I was looking for a place to bring Cubist back because I think uh, that's a super cool character. But it's also mired in all the uh, the Hellbent stuff, which I'm like, hmm, I don't know, that could be a bit of a pain in the neck. Your uh, your use of Tigra is also really fun. And this is an example, and I interview writers about this trope a lot, but using continuity to make things powerful and not overly complicated. Uh, Tigra has a baby from a scroll who was posing as Hank Pym. And yeah. you work that into this kind of story of motherhood about her little tiger child who doesn't know it has a scroll dad. And the yeah. fact that you work that in without having to provide four pages of explanation on its own is already a deep skill as a writer. Yeah, that was a tough one because, like, I think it's something that needed to be kind of called out because, you know, the, the circumstances of Tiger being a mother is pretty, pretty horrible. Um, and I think it's worth, because, I mean, a lot of this series of Moon Knight is people, people digging up, you know, the things in their life and the things in their past that cause them pain and exploring that and trying to move past it. And not necessarily trying to move past it, but like trying to, you know, chart a course forward. And it's not just, you know, Moon Knight and the associated system of people uh, that make that up, but also all the other people who are kind of in Moon Knight's orbit. And I think Tigra being the sort of representative of the superhero world in this book uh, and, you know, Moon Knight's interaction with it, I think it's, you know, important that she has the opportunity to, um, or rather, the story has the opportunity to explore 
you know, her feelings on this and, uh, you know, where she's at, her thoughts on this whole situation. You built a whole new supporting cast and mission for Moon Knight, and the mm. art is gorgeous. It's these giant yeah. white images against the dark, moody backgrounds. He's very scary. Uh, I've been really surprised that you have not brought Crawley or Frenchie or some of the really classic, consistent characters back in. I I, uh, I keep waiting for it, and I'm kind of glad you haven't done it because it feels like brand new territory for this character. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I've haven't you know totally ruled out or anything. But at the same time, I feel like if I'm going to go back to that, you know, original core supporting cast, I, I really want to have something to do with them. Um, and I'm not really sure what that would be yet. Uh, you know, like, for instance, I brought we brought back the the Shadow Cabinet. Well, briefly, for some of them, um, RIP, because I thought, you know, the Shadow Cabinet was a really cool idea and it's fun to see them come back. But also at the same time, you know, we don't see them having a greater effect beyond that issue just because they kind of serve their purpose. They were there to, <laughs> they're, they're there to be murdered and uh, to, <laughs> to, to make Moon Knight feel bad, like a lot of supporting characters in comic books. But um, given, you know, the sort of level of importance that, or relative level of importance they would have in Moon Knight history compared to the original gang, you know, Gina and Crawley and um you know marlene and why well, marlene's been there and frenchy uh that those are not people you just want to kill off uh off you know off the cuff because that would cause a lot of problems and you know hurt a lot of feelings so so yeah it's like i said it's just it's something i'd want to have something good for i don't want to bring them back just for the sake of you know nostalgia or whatever yeah, and your work with Marlene and with Dietrice, the daughter, as well mm -hmm. as uh, the the personalities existing in Moon Knight's head, you've used it in really creative, careful ways, but you're keeping Mark Spector as the hero in this story, and it's really wonderful. Uh, I'm really enjoying it as a fan of Moon Knight and oh, as a fan you. of yours, and I can't wait to see where it goes next. Um, switching gears, let's go over to Doctor sure. Strange. We got to talk about Clea last time a lot, who's yes. one of my all-time favorite Marvel characters. Uh, now Steven is back. Steven and Clea are kind of sharing the book in some ways. There's lots yeah. of crazy soap opera drama with Umar and Taboro's wedding and lots of things happening. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your work on Doctor Strange right now. Uh, I'm having, it's, writing Doctor Strange is kind of strange. Well, not at all. That's, that's, there's low hanging fruit, and then there's low hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> but it's it's an odd book because you know we got issue what six just came out, and you know you, you hit issue six in a, a new series. That's kind of you know your hump, your halfway point around before you kind of move on to into like the second trade paperback. Well, yeah, and I know a lot of writers that are being hired to write books that they only get five issues and then after oh, yeah, it's canceled. For sure. Yeah, I get it. six is a big deal actually. But at the same time, it's also issue like what, 21? Because I mean, we started this way back with Death of Doctor Strange number one. We did five issues of that. We did 10 issues of Strange. Now we're on six issues of Doctor Strange. So it's something that's new, but at the same time, it's more like the third act or the, you know, the latest act in an ongoing story because it's it's all the same story all, everything that is happening now is as a result of the events of Doc, death of dr strange number one um but yeah i think it's, it's it's a lot of fun it's a great book to write because i really love putting clea and strange together uh i think it's fun to have 
you know, a married a married couple in comic books, and especially like you know weirdos like Strange and Clea, and you know you don't you don't really see it a whole lot anymore, and uh, so I I think there's room for it, and I just really like those two characters together because they're both extremely idiosyncratic and you know both very odd characters, and in many ways, um, you know, contrast one another a lot. But at the end of the day, there's just something really fun with seeing that bond that they have and that, you know, the level of trust. So, um, yeah, I'm, re- I'm really enjoying working with them. And it's nice to it's nice to keep Clea in the forefront uh, after, you know, she headlined the book for 10 issues. I love I love Clea. I could name 15 or 20 Moon Knight villains without having to stretch. I could name 75 obscure Doctor Strange villains. <laughs> He's got this whole universe of crazy. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. What's it been like for you to tackle this rogues gallery? Uh, I mean, it's great because well, it's, it's also kind of odd because there are so many um, Doctor Strange villains, but there's so many Doctor Strange villains that just haven't really been touched since their first introduction. Um, I mean, we killed Agamon in the first issue of Doctor Strange. I think I saw someone pointed out that uh, I had written, I think, 75% of Agamon appearances at that point in time. And he <laughs> only appeared in like four or five issues that I'd written. So I was like, oh, shit. It's like, you know, a lot of these characters, they're there and then they just kind of aren't. Uh, you know, Tuboro, we've seen here and there over the years. Umar, I've seen fairly frequently because, you know, she's Clea's mom. So she's amazing. Like, I mean, even, oh, yeah, she's great. And I think. I feel like every time I write Umar, uh, she's got a different set of mot- motives, which ordinarily would be very inconsistent writing, but it seems very appropriate for Umar. Um, and, you know, she's just, you know, she's very mercurial. She keeps her own counsel. And um, we're we're getting to see, you know, various sides of her and her relationship with Clea and her relationship with Strange and, you know, now her relationship with Tiboro. It's a, uh, it's, Obscure canon that uh, Umar has slept with the Hulk in his Hulk form. <laughs> oh, I've, 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 I've heard it. And, you know, people have brought it to my attention. <laughs> it's a weird little fact for that character. She's, oh, yeah. she's really fun. Uh, when it comes to writing these different books, which have very different tones, and this is kind of going on my first question again, do you find sure. yourself in a different mindset as you're approaching these different books or different characters? Obviously, you're keeping copious notes and keeping us on a very narrative journey <laughs> for each one. Um, I think the trick is just sort of my general uh, writing method, which is um, zeroing in the voices of these characters as well as you can. Because once you know their voices, you have a pretty good sense of what they're going to do and also what you can expect of them, the kind of uh, narrative hoops you can make them jump through um, once they're you know fully formed in your head, once you think, okay, well, I know what they would do in this case. I know what they would do in this case, what they would say. Um, and I think that's just kind of it. Like, obviously, if I sit down to write Moon Knight, it's going to be wildly different uh, sort of set of themes and tone than if I'm doing Doctor Strange or if I'm doing The Avengers. You know, Moon Knight is generally very grim, very, um, it tends to be very introspective lately. Uh, and it was also filled with, you know, dumb macho bullshit one-liners, which are like just so, um, indulgent. Sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, whereas Dr. Strange is, it's, it's very much a story of a, a story of a married couple, a story of a marriage, um, that is always put under extraordinary stresses, but these are extraordinary people. And then the Avengers is just as big and loud as you can make it because that's what the Avengers are for. So there are 
different expectations and different kind of gears to shift moving from book to book. But I feel like ultimately it just comes down to knowing the characters, knowing the voices, um, which is easier for some than others. Like, you know, I did, I did several issues of, of um, Spider-Verse with Miles Morales. And I feel like I never quite got his voice down because just, I don't know. I don't know why. Just, I couldn't, couldn't get it locked in. When you can switch from these characters to like Black Cat and Mary Jane, where you got to touch on the X-Men universe a little bit because of the Limbo yeah. stuff, uh, yeah. it's it's really fun. You write the best Felicia Hardy. Uh, God, she's <laughs> great. Uh, and, and again, we've talked to you about her previously, but I, I, I love your work with this character. Could we expect more Black Cat from you in the future? Uh, not for me at the moment. I've got my uh, dance career pretty full up at this point in time. Absolutely. Uh, I was already pushing it with Black Cat and Mary Jane. So uh, with the three books I'm on now, plus something else I'm working on that's uh, not announced. Uh, yeah, I'm about I'm about at capacity, unfortunately. Sure, sure. When it comes to Moon Knight, you are notoriously using very little words per page, except when it comes to his therapy sessions, which is where a lot of the deep character stuff happens. When you jump over to Strange, the words are a little more dense. Then you take a book like The Team of the Avengers, and you've got to use a lot more words because there's a lot more conversations and a lot more characters to juggle. How much thought do you give to putting the word per page? Because you're great at letting the art speak for itself a lot of the times. Uh, very little at this point. Um, it was something I used to be, I was really bad at when I started. Uh, my first full issue is an absolute nightmare of words. There's just, uh, they are, you know, Gerardo Sandoval, the artist, had to take two pages and turn it into like a double page spread to make it work. So there's just so many panels on the page and so many words per panel. It's, I can still look at it now. It's an embarrassment, but, you know, an important object lesson. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the thing is, I've, you know, write, writing people talking in comic books is one of my favorite things to do. And I got really reined it in because, you know, no one no one needs a friggin' text page in a, you know, a Moon Knight book, right? Like, we just need just need people talking. You, you just need the information. And ultimately, you got to realize that the real superstars, they are. Um, I could have Moon Knight say all the cool shit he wants, but that's not what becomes a phone lock screen. You know what I mean? Um, so used to be i was very stingy with doing splash pages because it felt like really cheap to me like it was wasn't pulling my weight but you know moon knight i'm really kind of leaning you know easing up on that because you know, people people love splash pages artists like doing them um they're also very they're also great to, uh, to sell as original pages and that's those are the images that get passed around that get people interested in the book um i think moon knight was it 17? Uh, the one where he fights uh, Nimeon and Grand Mal inside the Midnight Mission. I think there's like six splash pages in that issue, but they're all awesome. And like Al Center did such a good job on them. So yeah, but where some like Avengers, you know, everybody's got to talk. There's seven people on this team and every one of those people uh, is the sole reason why one person at least is buying this book and they got to have their favorite to say something. Um, I was uh, I was sitting and thinking the other day, like Federico Sabatini must have like 20 different pinups of Moon Knight that he's drawn as like full splash pages of Moon Knight attacking because you don't want to do the same pose in everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's got to have him like oh, yeah. all hanging yeah. above his computer for reference. So the next one looks a little different. Uh, he's doing yeah. a great job on this book. Yeah. Alessandro is doing the doing all the, you know, the main issues. And uh, but yeah, as the, the second artist, Federico is stepping in for I think the next three issues. 
Um, yeah, Alessandro Capuccio is like incredible. Yeah. 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 So yeah, Federico has been doing great. Um, and then you know, have this kind of like long stretch of just his stuff. And then because you know, Alessandro had like 30 pages in 25, which was a lot of work. Yeah. This guy. yeah. It was beautiful though, man. Great job. That was a great oh, release. Agree. Yeah, that was uh <laughs> that was a funny one. I got an email from uh Tom Brevoir and he's like, Yeah, we're bumping this issue up from 30 pages to 70 pages. So um, you know, figure out how many pages you need and we'll you know chop up the rest. We'll do like backups and guest uh artists and guest writers. And I was in I was in England at the ballet with my wife, and I got the email just before it started. And through the whole ballet, that's all I could think about was like, how can I get him to get let me have all 70 pages? Because I was like, this is this is an opportunity you almost never have in comics you're always desperate for more pages because you know you're always trying to tell as much story as you can and it's like i could get so much business done it with 70 pages it's like a three and a half issue it's like a mini series or it's like a you know original graphic novel on its own um so yeah i was really trying to think of a way to sweet talk tom into letting me have it i think i sent this very carefully considered email I'm like oh this might be a crazy idea but you know hear me out and the response is just like yeah sure yeah, if you think you can do it, go ahead. Uh, I mean, and you you got to do the flashback stuff to uh, the old time and introduce Leila Alfauli mm. into the book, which is amazing. And I know, I know she's going to get some uh, some airspace in Moon Knight: City of the Dead as well. Yep. Uh, but yeah, great, great work. How did the Avengers happen for you? That's a huge upgrade, my friend. Mm. The, the Black Cat is amazing. Strange is amazing. Moon Knight is amazing. But the Avengers is like one of Marvel's like top three like flagship titles. How'd that happen? It's amazing. It's uh, like, I mean, Tom just emailed me in. I was actually looking this up not long ago uh, in April, I think, the end of April. Um, obviously not the most recent April, but um, but yeah, I said you know Jason's gonna be finishing up soon on Avengers. Uh, do you, you know, do you have any interest in putting something forward to see if uh, it's something you want to do? And that was kind of like it's a big deal. It's like it's Avengers, right? It's like it's it's a flagship property. It's a tentpole, and it's a huge opportunity, but also, you know, very worrying because I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, I've, I'd had a couple pitches that, uh, didn't make it. And I was like, Oh, I just don't, I don't, I don't want to whiff another one, you know? So I went into it and, you know, pretty quickly I got the ideas together that I wanted and, you know, start putting things into shape and, and went back and forth on it. And then, um, finally just Tom said, okay, I think this is in a good, good spot. Uh, we need, you know, number one in like three weeks. I was like, oh shit. Okay, great. Here we go. Jason Aaron uh, is yeah. a phenomenal professional writer. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, yeah. I say this with fondness as a person who reads a lot of comic books and does this professionally, but also exhaustion, his multiversal masters of evil story just went on and on. And then they launched the Avengers forever. So it was another title. And I just thought, when will this end? <laughs> so I'm really thrilled to see the new volume of Avengers starting because it's making me care again. I got burnt out on the previous stuff, uh, even though it was really fun and he played with all the toys in the toy box. Uh, your your new run is giving just a brand new fresh start and it's a lot of the same characters, but done in a new way that makes me really excited about what's happening again. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I feel like you can say that about almost any uh, long-running comic book where... I mean, you, you never really end off with as many people as you did when you started. Sure. I mean, usually not. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you know, starting fresh. Um, 
trying to just switch up focus, really. Because, I mean, I'm not going to do what Jason did better than Jason did because, I mean, he's, he's Jason. He's, you know, I was, I was reading his books about, like, holy shit, like, this is incredible stuff. Jason's incredible. His run four, my word. Yeah. I mean, and I always, always say, like, I feel like his Ghost Rider is an iconic uh, character. Wolverine and the X Men. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of that I love. Um, but yeah, because like, I, you know, I've, I've been a fan of Jason since well before I was making comics. Um, so we're kind of looking at a you know a way to shift the focus into something that's still the Avengers, but is different than what came before. So rather you know rather than going bigger, we're, we're you know focusing down. We've got uh, our seven Avengers, and I wanted it to be um, an Avengers with a with a. Avengers with a classic feel with modern sensibilities. Um, because, you know, we were kind of going back and forth on what we want for, or what sort of out guidelines we have for an Avengers roster. Like, okay, well, you know, you want to have like maybe two founding members and like maybe like a new person who's never been Avengers before, this or that. And, you know, I had a, a thing of just all like, um, you know, kind of C tier characters being the Avengers. So, like, what if they all, what if none of them had their own book? You know, this was their, all their home um but ultimately kind of went back to this thing where it's like we want this book to be the avengers not like savage avengers not secret avengers not um you know whatever then you've got to have like that pantheon you've got to have those a-list big name avengers characters uh so you need a captain america you need an iron man thor uh captain marvel black panther and then i wanted to put vision and scarlet witch in because to me they've always been iconic avengers which of course you know at seven characters already a lot uh always want you know i'd love to get i would have loved to have you know a a giant man love to have uh you know the wasp or hawkeye or you know any of those other iconic avengers but ultimately this is just kind of what i what i came down on as the it's in the most optimal group of people for my purposes and then you know, Al's got uh, Janet in uh, Avengers Incorporated, which looks you know sick as hell. So yeah, I'm so excited that, for that. that. That's that's that sorted. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting process to get here, uh, filled with uh, a few uh, a few nervous breakdowns and uh, a few a few uh, secretive tears. But uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm happy where we're at now, and you know, I was really psyched to get CF on it. Uh, we worked together on Black Cat for several issues, and um, yeah, after seeing him do X Men, I really wanted him on Avengers. I uh, preemptive announcement: I'm having CF Villa on my show later this year, which I'm oh, very awesome. excited about. Uh, I mean, what a huge honor as as well. I was really surprised initially at your choice of characters. A lot of them are the same as in the previous volume, but you chose all legacy characters, with the exception, although he's still legacy, of Sam Wilson instead of Steve Rogers in the Captain mm-hmm. America suit. You took characters that are in very weird places in their continuity. Iron Man and Thor and Black Panther especially are just in the weirdest spots right now. Uh, And then you put Captain Marvel in charge of the team, throw in uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch. You look at the continuity you have to learn for a character like Moon Knight or Strange, and then you consider the Avengers universe. (laughs) It It is not the same. These are in full encyclopedia volumes. Uh, I'm really impressed with how well you found individual voices for the characters, and you seem to be exploring particular purposes for each one as well. Mm. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on tackling Avengers continuity, and then how you found the voices for these characters in their own complicated storylines. Um, I mean, as far as Avengers continuity, it's the same. Um, 
it's the same way I approach continuity everywhere else, where I think continuity is only important as long as it's useful and it's fun. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if it's a pain in the ass, then I don't really care anymore. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It seems it's, it's all it's all it's all made up anyway. You know, it's like uh, latest issue of Doctor Strange. We have a flashback where Doctor Strange goes to the the War of the Seven Spheres, which was you know, shit was it like Doctor Strange seventy nine or something in like nineteen ninety. Um, and at that point in time, he had um, you know, a, a really different look. He's clean shaven, had long hair, had like little round sunglasses. And I was like, okay, we can't lead off our book with a flashback of that costume because no one's going to understand who the hell it is. Like, would it be continuity wise correct to have that there? Sure. Does it make any sense? Is there anything to be gained for that? No, not at all. No one remembers what that costume is. And no one looking at that is going to say, oh shit, there's Doctor Strange in the past. Um, and that's not Avengers, but all that to say, I think continuity is a lot of fun. It makes the universe feel real. It makes it feel lived in. But at the same time, continuity is always changing. And I think that if it's more of a burden than it is fun or useful, then you have to kind of investigate why you're bothering. Yeah, it's the interesting balance of you can't alter what's come before, but you don't have to reference sure. it unless you sure. unless it serves your story. Yeah, and like you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying I got to go out and fix everything, but you know, what? I'm not going to mention every single time there's been an appearance of someone in the Avengers book because the Avengers book has gone on for frigging years and years, like forever. So as you know, at, after a certain point, it just kind of becomes, you know, you, there's diminishing returns because it's not, oh, excuse me, I think I'm staring. It's not making the book more interesting for most readers. Uh, at a certain point, it just becomes a chore. Yeah. And at a certain point, it just becomes a cudgel that people use where, you know, if you don't know that, I don't know, Kang sent the growing men back in like 1970, whatever, <laughs> then then, it's, then it just becomes a kind of one-upmanship thing. It's not about stories anymore. It's not about characterization. It's not about plot or having fun or, you know, any of those things just becomes about tedious repetition of minutia, which who gives a shit? Like, yeah. who cares? It's... It it had like I'm not interested in playing trivia. I'm interested in telling stories. And, it's fun know, to see. It's fun to see an Easter egg, but I don't need a sure. whole Wikipedia entry each time an Easter yeah. egg shows up. Yeah, I totally get you. Yeah, which is, which is not to say I don't do research, and it's not to say I'm not always reading old books. But at the same time, um, you know, at the end of the day, my job is not to be an encyclopedia. My job is to tell stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if I need an encyclopedia, that's what Tom Prevort's for. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of, that's kind of my long, my long winded version of that, but uh, yeah, like you you can't you can't take everything into account because it's already wildly unrealistic that these people have had this amount of adventures in their lifetime because they should all be geriatrics at this point in time if keeping any sort of, <laughs> any sort of realistic time scale. It's fun suspension of disbelief, but we still yeah, the rules for nerd universes at the same time. Uh, what's it like to approach the modern continuity of your core cast of characters who have a lot of their own books? Sam Wilson, Scarlet Witch, uh, Thor, Iron Man. I mean, there's uh, Captain Marvel alone. Uh, what, what's it like to approach where each of these characters is in their individual journey and then weaving that into a team book, knowing that other stories about these characters are still being told? Um. It's one of those things where figuring out their history up to the point of our number one and then 
keeping up with it from there on out are two very different beasts. Sure. Because if I know where I'm starting, then that's great. But once I've started, then that's another, you know, that's another parallel track that's going on at the same time. So, you know, by the time, so shit, what's this? Avengers, two, three, four, five, six. You're on volume. You're on volume nine, if I'm counting right. Oh, I know. I just, I'm just counting my own numbers here. Oh, pardon uh, me. By, by the time you get to the next arc in Avengers number seven, we'll have had, I think, four costume changes. Uh, not counting, because I, I know CF put um, Wanda in an earlier costume number one. I think just because he liked it better, which, you know, fair enough. But, like, you know, Iron Man's got a stealth suit. Child got a new costume with his new number one. Thor's going back to the Kirby costume. And then the new um, Jen Bartel um, Captain Marvel costume. So, you know, our, our cast looks different by number seven than it did by number one. They didn't even change any characters. They just all have different outfits now. Um, so, like, there's there's a lot of that. But I think it's important because ultimately what happens in a solo book is going to trump what happens in a team book. Because that's just the way it works you know um so it's important to be to be collegial to try to play as part of a team do not make the people writing you know iron man or captain marvel or captain america or scarlet witch trying to make their lives any harder uh by the stuff that we're doing in uh in avengers um so it's it's an interesting position to be in because but like i said a solo book in my mind at least generally has precedence in saying what a character does and what care what happens to a character than the team book so we're kind of at the you know the, the bottom of the hill as far as you know the the changes running downhill but tom's usually very good to keep us appraised of what's going on um you know i'm reading i'm reading books to try to keep up with what's going on but i mean I, again there's also a certain suspension of disbelief um you know, speaking of Jason Aaron, I think that was his Wolverine run. But they the they showed how Wolverine was on like a different book and a different team every day in a week or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good. Which story. was it's just extremely funny. Um, so you know, we have to understand that. I don't know if Captain Marvel. I don't know if is marooned on a desert island. It doesn't mean she's can't be in Avengers that month. We just kind of say it sort of that works out somehow. Well, I know I know creators have had to tackle this a lot in uh, past comic book eras uh where they yeah. say you know the books are not happening at the same time if spider-man's in yeah. jail here but he's fighting this guy here they're different stories at different times you're bold enough to reference these books regularly in your writing though which is kind of why i pushed on that question for a moment oh yeah you're uh a lot of people will just like you know every 10 issues of the avengers or so they'll note like oh yeah thor's dad just died and iron man lost his company but it has nothing to do with the story you seem to be working really hard to make that part of the character's motivations and thinking patterns which i'm really impressed with you're, you're doing it pretty seamlessly so far yeah and i mean that that kind of comes back to one being collegial, uh, whereas you want to help the people who are writing, you know, not writing, sorry, but, you know, working on, you know, writing, drawing, coloring, lettering, the solo books, you want to help make the, the things that they are making happen to their characters feel real and feel like they have impact. Because if, you know, Tony's lost his company, Iron Man, but in Avengers, it's like, hey, I'm, hey, you know, everything's fine. It's Stark International. Then you're like, well, okay, that's, that doesn't really land. Um, so carrying forward these things, you know, I, you know, Black Panther's whole situation with being on the outs, uh, I really love because it's such a, a useful um, 
useful lens to view the the relationships between him and the other heroes through. yeah yeah and i think it gives them a real real kind of edge or a real frisson that is a lot of fun to work with when you're working on a book like avengers you know obviously eve's going to be going in a, a particular direction with it in her book but <laughs> as we have him in avengers we get to see how that plays out in this kind of like larger superhero um community a larger superhero world uh and you know we have this bad blood between uh you know T'Challa and Sam from uh, Sam's book and then carrying on uh with what was happening with T'Challa and Black Panther and John Ridley was writing it and there's just a lot of like really fertile ground to draw upon because I'm not just doing this because I'm a real swell guy but it also creates really interesting stuff that I can work with with these characters and by taking the bits that all happen in their solo books and seeing how that they they influence the characters on this team i think this is really interesting i think that's where a lot of the the kind of dramatic meat comes from it's really smart and it's fun so i've only read three issues of your run so far since that's all that's been published at the time that yeah. we are doing this interview <laughs> issue one gives us the giant setup where the characters are getting together because there became there came a day unlike any other where the you know totally. mightiest heroes had to stand against terminus uh and it's a lot of really good character beats as captain marvel's pulling the team together issue two gives us the threat of issue three, if you will, because Kang the mm -hmm. Conqueror has just had his ass handed to him by a new group of supervillains called the Ashen Combine. And the Kang stuff is really fun, but the Ashen Combine characters are so weird and scary, and all of them yeah. have such unique uh, and special motivations, it seems, as they mix together. Uh, I would love to hear about your first three issues of uh, the Avengers from your perspective, and especially about these Ashen Combine characters, which people seem really excited about. Well, I hope so. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are like, oh, I hate doing a first issue. I'm like, I love doing a first issue. We can just kind of, we got free reign to kind of look at where everybody's at, uh, look at how their their life is, what's going on, cut around, see what's, see what's shaking, and then, you know, then really get into it. Um, and then the second one, you know, we, we catch Kang in a, a bad spot. We're actually a just I'll correct you, it wasn't the Combine who did Kang in, it was the, the Twilight Court, because this is Kang as we saw him at the tail end of Timeless 2022. Pardon me, yes. Yeah. So we're I I had got to do Timeless again last year. And I was like, well shit, I can just use this as like a runway for my Avengers run that you know nobody knew, at the time knew I was writing. Uh, though when it said see what happens next in Avengers number one, people were like, oh I think we know who's gonna do Avengers next. Um so yeah we're we're you know kang because of timeless was set on a collision course with uh the avengers which i was very very happy that kind of like worked out and got that to uh, shake out um so you know we, we have our exposition because this is you know a real big thrust for what's happening in the avengers but at the same time it's a great opportunity to have a lot of these vignettes and uh you know an important thing to show the avengers doing stuff that isn't necessarily punching supervillains. Yeah. You know, they're out yeah. there you know, saving people's lives around the world. Uh, it's not just New York City. It's not just throwing down with the Melter or some shit like that, uh, which is great. I love seeing the Melter get his uh, teeth knocked in. But at the same time, you know, the Avengers have a higher calling. How do you uh, decide on the name the Ashen Combine? Um, Just kind of was kicking a lot of stuff around, really. Um, I had a, I had a really hard... Had a really easy time naming the characters and had a really hard time naming the team so the ashen combine i think this i think this started off as like the annihilation combine i'm like well, that's a bit silly 
So uh, moved on to something a little more, uh, a little more poetic. They're so weird. <laughs> Tell us about these. Yeah. Who, who are the Ashen Combine? Yeah, so we've got these were characters that I knew I wanted the Avengers to fight. You know, a bunch of big and hitherto unknown uh, bad guys. Um, in part because like I wanted to have <clears throat> them to have a new threat that was all their own. So you know, no one's no one's seen these guys before. No one's really uh, sure what they're capable of. And it's and also I just like making up new stuff. It's a lot of fun. So I you know went through my old notes folder. I just picked out a bunch of names that I had written down here and there, and um, started kind of extrapolating what their powers could be and like what they could do. And but I left it pretty loose. So, like I had a basic kind of descriptor of what I wanted them to look like, but ultimately it was very sparse because. You know, I'm not. I'm not the artist. I'm not a character designer, uh, and I wanted CF to have as much freedom as possible to work on these to figure out what these characters look like. And he was just in every almost every opportunity, he took the weirdest way possible, um, because almost every time he sent back a design, it was stranger and uh, more bizarre than I had originally intended. The idol, al- the idol alabaster, may give me nightmares. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about Like I, I didn't expect it that. Um, <laughs> I had like a very different uh, idea in my head, and, and I was so pleased when he sent that back. He's like, "Yeah, this might be a tough sell, but uh, take a look." I'm like, "No, that's perfect. That's so much better than I'd originally thought." And then that kind of became a feedback loop where you know, I had these names and these powers and these kind of bare bones descriptors, but as these designs came back, then it then influenced the you know these characters personalities more it influenced what they could do the the way they would move or fight uh the powers that they would manifest because all of us all of a sudden having this new and unexpected design sparked a whole lot of new and unexpected ideas so you know idol alabaster uh, city smith um i think those two are the the most weird um and the furthest from what i had thought i mean all of them are just a real motley crew of weirdos I mean, like you never you can't look at those guys and say you know i've seen this before <laughs> though i'm though i'm told that my design my what i call for from the dead is similar to i think a guilty gear character or some shit like that i don't know uh i don't that uh, i don't know but okay sure it's a ton of fun man i'm really enjoying your work i hope it's coming across that i'm a big fan uh oh, yeah. i uh i also, I'm hearing that there's another project we can expect to be announced, which is really exciting as well. Um, wrapping up here in the next few minutes, we're going to put this out in early September. What can people have to look forward to from you? Uh, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Any teasers you want to give us? So, September, we'll see. Moon Knight number what, 27? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just yeah. barely got the Moloids and Hunter's Moon, which was yes. fun. <laughs> yeah, Moon Knight 27, um, Federico Sabatini is uh, continuing his, his uh, tenure here. We're going to see uh, Moon Knight and Hunter's Moon team up to try to get a lead on the Black Spectre. And to do so, they're going to be going back to uh, an old friend we haven't seen in quite some time, uh, a surprise guest star. So I think I think people should get a chuckle out of it. So we'll be interested to see that. Um, Fantastic. As well, we've got Doctor Strange number seven. Uh, we're back with Pascal Ferry. And uh, we're going back to the 
<laughs> what's left of the wedding of uh, Umar and Taboro? <laughs> yeah, you uh, really read wedding to them. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was the thing. Is Darren Shan, strange editors, like uh, you know, you had you had this thing for issue, I don't remember five. He's like, but like, what if we did like put like Taboro and uh, Umar together and like had a wedding? I'm like, that's a great idea. I'm actually gonna chuck whatever I had before and do that instead because that's much better. Um, but yeah, so we're we're gonna see some. We see General Strange and Doctor Strange face off, and uh, this kind of sets the stage for uh, spinning down this uh, this story and seeing what happens. And uh, the Avengers. So next week we're gonna see Thor versus Isla Alabaster. We're gonna see Wanda versus the, or, sorry Scarlet Witch versus the Dead, and we're gonna see um, Iron Man versus the City Smith next month in September. We're gonna see the rest of the matchups there. Uh, Vision versus uh, Meridian Diadem and Captain Marvel versus Lord Onwe, uh, plus uh, Captain America and uh, Black Panther on the Impossible City, and who are rapidly realizing they bit off more than they could chew. I'm so impressed by how seamlessly you kept all that together. Like, not only you have the issue numbers ready, but you're <laughs> you're writing through I mean, you're, ahead you're, on everything. You're, you're, it's because this month's issues all came out roughly at once. So I was like, okay, six, 26, and then right, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, normally, I have no idea what's coming out when. Um, I think that's it. I don't think I have anything else that month. Yeah, uh, I, think that, I, think, I think. I was going to say, where could people find you online if they'd like to? And is there anything outside of your Marvel stuff that you'd like to plug? Uh, I don't really have anything going on outside of Marvel at the moment. Um, as far as where to find me, I'm on uh, Blue Sky, Jed McKay. Uh, I'm still on Twitter, such as it is, uh, at, at Jed McKay as well. But same, anybody's guess how long that'll last. So, uh, but you know what? More importantly, you can find me on the uh, the shelves of your local comic store several times a month. Uh, yeah, the Twitter thing, I feel like we've been saying this for like six months now, like Twitter, if it's still there tomorrow, <laughs> it just keeps surviving. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just kind of one of those things. I'm like, when, when will the, when will my distaste for this outweigh its utility? I so. only, I only use it for this show. Uh, all my personal stuff is private. I, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing for me. Uh, well, Jed, what an honor. Thank you for your time and your talents today. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to see what you have coming up next. Uh, everybody who's listening, stay tuned. We will launch into the review of X-Force Minus One featuring Sarah Gailey <laughs> and Scotty White uh, immediately following this. Uh, but Jed, thank you again. Have a beautiful day, man. All right. Well, it's great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk again. That sounds amazing. I'd love to. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jed McKay. It was so fun to talk to Jed about all of the amazing things he's doing. And now I am so happy to be joined by returning guest Sarah Gailey and my new friend Scotty White, who I've been chatting with on Twitter forever. <laughs> it's so good to meet Scotty in person. We're going to be delving into X-Force Minus One. And I actually really love this issue. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about some new characters today. 
first, let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let our guests where they might know you from, what your gender pronouns are. And our intro question for today is, uh, tell me about a time you ran into a wild animal in the wild. Uh, Scotty, would you like to go first? Sure. Hi, I'm Scotty White. I'm a enrolled member of the Porch Band of Creek Indians here in South Alabama. And I'm a comic book writer, a toy store owner, and a podcaster. And uh, the one time I've I've run, living in South Alabama, I have run into lots of animals. <laughs> but uh, one I remember uh, driving back from Pensacola to to uh, my home in Alabama. We drove in through some uh, rural area one late at night, and we ran into a herd of deer. We had to slow the car down, and a herd of deer just kind of continued coming around us like it was nothing. Like they they, they didn't mind the car at all, and we just stopped and let them come around us. That's fantastic. I love seeing deer in the wild. It's one of my favorite things, actually. They're everywhere here. <laughs> oh, there's something so spiritual about it. Like, especially if you say like a moose, right? Like, there's just like, ah, oh, there's like, it takes your breath a little bit. Uh, we get mountain goats here in Utah once in a while, but you got to get up high enough to see them. <laughs> <laughs> we got lots of deer down. We got lots, a lot of, we have critters. I mean, we have lots of critters, so we got critters. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm going to give everyone a very fair warning in advance. I grew up in the rural Ozarks, if you recall. And whenever I have a guest on who has a drawl as delicious as Scotty's is, my, my voice will very likely start to go like this the longer we record. But maybe Come on down it, here. Be fine. It's all good. Come on. We love you. When I hear something like, we got critters, it takes me back to childhood. <laughs> uh, let me go over to Sarah Gailey next. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. I'm Sarah Gailey. I'm an author of science fiction, fantasy, and horror across genres and mediums. Um, my pronouns are they, them. And my most notable wild animal interaction was probably I had the opportunity to go diving with sharks. Um, gosh, close to like eight years ago now. And it was so fun. They were nurse sharks. They're like big puppies. They're so friendly and sweet and just want snacks. Um, but a big... Um, it must have been a manta ray because if it was a stingray, I would have been scared to death. A manta ray uh, came up to our group and was like, do you all have snacks? And just took its entire huge pancake body and sort of slid its way up my torso and onto my face. And I could like, like see its little mouth right in front of my um, mask. And I just remember thinking like, this is how you end up with a, a very close relationship with a species that you never anticipated meeting in the first place. <laughs> um, it was a blast. I will also say, uh, Chad, to your point about moose, I also have a very spiritual reaction to seeing a moose, which is that my spirit tries to leave my body because they scare the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm about to tell you a moose story, but first I want to hear oh, how no. Comic-Con was for you. How was it? Hmm. Oh my God, Comic-Con was a blast. As we're recording this, I am just home from that, followed immediately by a, a cross-country road trip to teach in um, Pennsylvania. And Comic-Con was incredible. I got to meet so many people. Everyone was so kind and welcoming and thoughtful and interested um, in everybody else's work, which is lovely. And I got to meet my very first cosplayer, uh, someone cosplaying a character I created, which just I, I screamed so loudly that my table mate at the signing I'm sure has some hearing loss on one side now which character uh Elise from know your station who is Beautiful. the kind of point of view main character um this person was part of a trio of people who were cosplaying my comic book covers and so there were two people 
dressed up as Eat the Rich covers, and then this one person dressed as Elise from Nigger Station, which was just a just a lifetime highlight for me. That's fantastic. Now, Scotty, I know you are also a writer, and I would love to hear a little bit about your work if you'd like to share. Sure. I've, I'm, I have a small publishing company called Ninja Mop Studios, and we do uh, fun science fiction fantasy stories. My current one is called Chronicles of Limbo. It's about a 300-year-old Native American dompier and her three and her cosmically powered toddler as they write. <laughs> I like I, I get the looks on the Zoom, which is really funny. <laughs> Look, it's a market that's not been tapped yet, guys. Come on. And so, uh, and it's their adventures at the center of the multiverse. So, uh, it crazy shenanigans, and I get to create, you know, new creatures and monsters and people. It's a, a mixture of monsters and lasers, things I love, and you know, I get to put, you know, porch porch creek Indians in a in a comment because we've no one's ever heard of us, and so I'm I'm trying to fix that. I'm trying to put us the porch creek in movies and TVs and comics, so people will be like, oh, there's other people out there beside the Apache and the Navajo, and there that there we're, we're people too. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, I introduced myself at the start of the show, but I will give a wild animal story. And I actually have a lot of wild animal stories, believe it or not. But this is one that uh, stands out. So I'm uh, I'm 22. It's my summer off from college. I'm working in a little town. Not It's not even a town. I'm working in like a dinner theater in the wilderness of like a resort mountain area in Idaho. So it's like, it's like pine trees and waterfalls and rivers and stars and right, like little cabins and that kind of stuff. And I had to dress as a cowboy in this musical that I was in. And I had like a 20 minute break from the show. And I like left my stuff back at my cabin, which was like a half mile. And uh, I didn't have time to like get my keys or anything. So I just went jogging to like run back to my little cabin to get my stuff. And I startled a moose and I'm literally in full cowboy gear, like a hat, <laughs> big old like antlered moose who was probably about 30 yards from me. I startled him and he charged me and I jumped into like the weeds and landed and I could feel like the ground like as it ran by. And I was like, I almost died. It was, it was really intense. Uh, so that was, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I described Moose as spiritual, but yes, they're very scary at the same time. <laughs> Every time I see uh, a, a news headline where like Buffalo attacks woman in Yellowstone National Park, I'm like, oh, yep, I got gotcha. <laughs> Uh Now, I'm a huge X-Force fan. So my first comic book at Marvel that I ever picked up with was X-Force number 27. Uh, we're going to jump into 1997 here for Flashback Month, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, but this is a comic book I picked up off the shelves. It features a character that I love right at the top of like my top 10 list, which is Warpath. Uh, I, I really adore these characters. Do you guys have a relationship with X-Force at all? Is this a, is this a series you enjoy? We're going to talk about Warpath and Thunderbird uh, next, but uh, what, what's your relationship with this team or this era of comics? Um, I will jump in and say I'm new to this era. Um, I This is like, feels like a brand new um, world to be jumping into and kind of a even in an era of um, comics uh, style in terms of the uh, illustration that I'm not as familiar with. So this really felt like a fun kind of introduction to a, a brand new area of X. Fantastic. Uh, Scotty, how about you? So this is, I, I had just left comics the first time when, when this era started. Uh, my era is I, 
I was the sucker who the, the, the right age for like X-Men number one, where they had the five covers. And so I got X-Force one at the, at the time where they're all bagged and sealed with, with trading cards. And so I read X-Force early on up until, I don't know, probably in the twenties the or so. And uh, then pulled away from comics. And, and then I got back in during the Grant Morrison age with new X-Men. I'm always finding eras every five or 10 years <laughs> that I really like. Uh, right now it's Krakoa. I'm all about Krakoa. Krakoa brought me yeah. back into to, to action. But um, I love this, this, this team of X, X-Force that we've got here. And so it's, um, and I love, the, I love the, the comic we're going to talk about. So uh, this is an era in X-Force in 1997. Operation Zero Tolerance has been launched. Bastion is control of the government and there are, Prime Sentinels, where like they're human Sentinels being sent out and they're capturing mutants on behalf of the government. Uh, Domino's got a huge story going on. But across the line at Marvel Comics in this month in 1997, they did what they called Flashback Month, where every series did a minus one issue, which is set before the Fantastic Four, number one, which is the assignment. But the writers also had the challenge of trying to make the story they were telling then relevant to what was happening in the comics uh, at the time that they were telling the stories. So we get a really cool Warpath story in this issue. We've been covering Flashback Month on my show for a little while. This is the second to last Flashback Month issue that we're going to cover before we firmly jump into the early 70s stuff. Uh, But I really love this era of comics. I love this art and I love these characters. Uh, did you guys know about Flashback Month before? What was it like for you to kind of jump into this old story before we uh, before we introduce our characters? I love when we get to see uh, backgrounds on characters that we know and love. I love I love some kind of retcon stuff, and and especially in histories that we don't know about. So I like it when a writer and a creator comes in and, and says, "Oh, I have a great idea for this." And I thought this, you know, what we're getting into is was it was a was a fun idea. So yeah, I, I was all for it. Yeah, I I also love a flashback episode pretty much in any medium, and I find it to be a really great way to engage with characters who I'm not necessarily familiar with all their current lore. It it always feels like an opportunity to get to know them from the ground up a little bit. Um, I did know about the the flashback series because I think the episode that I recorded previously with you, Chad, was part of the same deal. I know that it was a uh, like a or previously or an interstitial. Yeah, you and I, of... you and I did Hidden Years, which is two thousand one, yes, yes. set in the early seventies. So it's it's a similar vibe in that it's a modern creator telling an old story. The Flashback Month was a specific like event. Hidden Years ran for twenty two issues. This is just like a one shot part of this title, and then we're back to the regular storytelling. Yeah, these are fun. And yeah, anytime you get to see a prequel, I'm always I'm always into it. I think it's a fun as long as it's well done. And this one's well done. I I, I like it a lot. Uh, the only other flashback month ne- uh, left for us is Wolverine minus one, which we'll be doing in our next episode. I'll talk about that at the end. Uh, but I always get to, inter- uh, excuse me, I always love introducing new characters to this show as well. So let me give an official Gray Malkin Lane welcome to both Thunderbird and Warpath. We have talked about these characters loosely on my show, just in conversation, but we've never taken time to introduce them. Uh, Let's start with Thunderbird for just a minute, and then I want to talk about Thunderbird. Uh, In Giant Size X-Men number one, this is the infamous story that relaunched the X-Men franchise into superstardom right before Chris Claremont took over the book. The book had been running on reprints for a little while. 
The original X-Men have been captured by Krakoa, who at the time was an evil monster alien island, not not the island nation of mutants that they would come to love. Uh, And uh, Professor Xavier is traveling around the globe, and he is recruiting a diverse team of mutants. This is the first appearance of Storm and Nightcrawler and Colossus. Wolverine comes over from the Hulk here. We also get the first appearance of Thunderbird or John Proudstar. This is not a giant size X-Men one review, but I do want to introduce this character briefly because he has a pretty powerful place in the X-Men franchise for a couple of different reasons, although he's not a character that is often used. The caption when we meet him in this book is Camp Verde, Arizona. John Proudstar does not like the reservation. He does not like to watch the old ones sitting slumped against their doorsteps, dreaming dreams of glory long gone. John Proudstar is an Apache, and he is ashamed of his people. The Apache were meant to be hunters, warriors, not sad-eyed, simpering squaws. And I apologize for that word. We'll talk about that in a second. They were meant to run free through the crisp plains grasses, the wind blowing wildly through their hair. Once nothing could stand before the Apache, the bison that covered these plains fell like rain before Apache skill, Apache bravery. And this character is angry. In his first interaction with Charles Xavier, he calls Xavier a cripple. He calls him white eyes. He says, you can stuff a cactus, Custer. The white man needs me. That's tough. I owe him nothing but the grief he's given my people. Now beat it. And Xavier responds with, perhaps the Apache are all frightened, selfish children. And suddenly Proudstar's like, well, fine, I'll prove myself. I'll join your team then. Let's talk about Thunderbird for just a moment. And Scotty, I will defer to you quickly here, but I would love to hear Sarah's opinions as well. I am not a fan of early Thunderbird uh, because he's, he's the... I'm a Native American with a chip on my shoulder stereotype, and it just drives me nuts every time he talks. <laughs> if I hear the word white man come out of his mouth one more time, I'm just like, cringy. Ah, no, stop it. <laughs> We're more than that stereotype. And unfortunately, in that era, that's that's all they had. And, I, and you know, in context, I understand. Do I have to like it? I don't. <laughs> and so I, I like later on when, like, Danny Moonstar comes into things, and I think things level out with her. But yeah, Thunder, Thunderbird at the beginning is rough. <laughs> There's a well, Sarah. Let me hear your thoughts actually first. I mean, I think I think pretty along the lines of what Scotty was saying. I try to contextualize the things that make me cringe because representation in media is very reflexive and reactive to what has come before, right? So, like um, speaking in my own lane of disability representation, uh, there was this real big trend in like the '90s and early 2000s of a woman in a wheelchair who's a huge bitch for no reason. And (laughs) that was happening in response to the like angelic cripple representation that came before it. That that was people saying, no, we're more liberated than that. We get to be huge bitches for no reason. Um, But being in the context I am now where I'm like my own reactive, reflexive representation of disability in media is more nuanced than that. I cringe when I see it. And so that like very angry chip on his shoulder uh, stereotype. I'm like, okay, yes, that is, that is reacting to a previous stereotype and saying we're going to have more nuanced layered representation than that now. But I, for my current context, I kind of go, Oh, okay. 
Now, it's important. I'm going to note three things really quickly. There are hundreds of different tribes across the United States and hundreds of different reservations. And what basically happened, and this is a vast oversimplification, is settlers arrived in America and then quickly expanded west and west and west and west and west. And they took over everything. And there became this kind of running joke about cowboys versus Indians that would run in our media for a long time, where cowboys were portrayed as the heroes and Indians as the quote-unquote savages, which then became the term that was used by a lot of different sports teams, Indians and Native Americans and savages interchangeably used. Now, it is not proper normally for a white guy to say the phrase Indian. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Saying Native American is much more respectful. And it's sort of a it's sort of a term that you can choose to use if you are part of the class, but it's not a term that we should use uh, unless we uh, have a particular sensitivity around it, because that's not where people come from. We also use this term Native American to describe hundreds of different types of people with hundreds of languages and cultures and religious trends. Now, I am somewhat well-versed in this as a white guy because I'm a therapist and I worked on a Native American reservation for about five years doing mental health work. I also have Native American members of my family through adoption, uh, but that does not make me an expert on any of these things. Thunderbird falls into a really interesting category because we need representation. And so when you go back and you see a character like Thunderbird elevated to the status of a full-fledged X-Man, and he's wearing the tropes of the Native American chieftains, right? When you see characters wearing the headdress or the particular colors, or we're using Native American spirituality in the portrayal of their costumes, uh, and then we have other tropes on top of that. This is one of many characters who representation is really important, but they are also portrayed in really problematic ways. Uh, go to the uh, the trial of uh, Sunfire, which we'll be holding later this year, or the trial of Banshee, which we've put out on my show, for further conversations about this. I also just put out publicly an episode uh, on the character Shamrock with Trina Farrell that talks about the portrayal of Irish characters by white writers and how that's often a problem. Uh, the third thing I'll note here quickly, and then I'd like to get your feedback. When we are in a subgroup, uh, I like to hang out with my gay friends and my trans friends and my drag queen friends. <clears throat> and there's kind of running gags where we'll be like, oh, look at all the straight people. Look at all the heterosexuals. Uh, we kind of have just like a running joke of, of there's something transformative about being able to just be collectively queer together and poke fun at the wider culture. And this is something I see happen with a lot of people who are together with people who are like them. There's something about, and I, and I cannot speak for any other subgroup, I want to be really clear, but people who are uh, disabled poking fun at the uh, able-bodied community, people who are deaf poking fun at the hearing community, people who are Black poking fun at the white community. There's something a little bit liberating about being able to be like, oh, right? And so when we see these Native American characters angry at white people, there's a level of ownership that would be all right, I think, if the writers and creators were Native American. But when you have a white team writing a Native American character who's angry at white people, there's a different level of discomfort in association there. So I'm trying to be careful with my words as I introduce all these topics, but I would love to hear some of your feedback. And if either of you need to call me on any bullshit, I'm so happy to hear it. <laughs> uh, Scotty, do you want to take that first? So I would like to add, uh, 
about the word Indian. Uh, it is in our tribal name. So we are the Porch Banner Creek Indian. So it's it's fine with us. However, that being said, uh, if you know someone's you know particular tribe, it's all right to call them by their tribe. Call me Creek. You know that's that's acceptable when 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 talk. Some people kind of get confused or nervous about about especially when talking to me and i'm just like it's it, it's fine it's fine it's, it's it, we're all going to be good here um i you know i 100 agree that um when the when white writers are, are writing especially in this era writing about native americans and they're i know that they mean well i really know that they mean well but they are only educated what they know at the time so they only had movies and tv and what little history they were taught taught it taught in school which wasn't much there a lot of times you know you just you you learn two things about indians and and uh, and um in history pilgrims and the and, and the trail of tears and then every now and then you may if you make it to the make it to the west you'll hear a little bit about the way you may you may hear wounded knee especially in the 70s after um bury my heart wounded knee came out but um that's about that's about all you, you hear but you never hear about the most important things like the 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 uh, american indian movement and the things that we we accomplished over those years after um you know after um, the reservations were, were made so I understand where, again, like we, as we, we said before, I understand where they're coming from. I know they're meaning well. It's still cringy. <laughs> well, and Jaisai is number one, also introduces an African woman, and it has a Japanese man, and an Irish man, and a German man, and a Russian man. And the problematic portrayal is a little subtle and a little different from character to character, but Thunderbird's portrayal makes me the most uncomfortable. He's literally wrestling a buffalo down in the first appearance as he's angry about white people. And there's something magic about it, but also something very uncomfortable. We'll keep talking about it, but Sarah, do you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I think on the on the subject of the specific discomfort of seeing a member of a like a member of an in-group putting those inside jokes into the mouth of a member of a marginalized group. Um, I think my discomfort comes from the fact that when we're hanging out with our like marginalization cohort, right? When I'm hanging out with queer people, when I'm hanging out with disabled people, when I'm hanging out with gender queer people, our jokes at the expense of members people who aren't members of our marginalized group are very like silly and light. And right. when people who are not in a marginalized group write those jokes, they tend to write it with the perspective of anger and like implicit violence. Um, when I see a, a native character making like comments about white people in comics and it's, and in books, and when that content is written by a white person, it tends to be, even when it's an attempt to empower the character, um, it, it comes with like this really sincere anger and threat of violence, even if that threat of violence is like withheld. Like it's like this very pissed off person who's saying, oh, I just am right on the edge of doing something threatening, which does, I think, reinforce a white supremacist narrative of, you know, uh, marginalized people being a threat to white comfort. As opposed to just like this, this is just this is just the jokes that we make when we're hanging out with people who are like us, um, and I think that's where my kind of that's where my read of the discomfort that I feel when I I read that kind of thing comes in. Yeah, when you read a book from like 1971 and it's Captain America fighting like a whole gang of like black guys in the street, there's something so uncomfortable about that because all of the nuance is missing. It's just the white guy punching, right? Like there's there's problems. Thunderbird is redundant in Giant Size X-Men number one. 
in that Colossus is also super strong and Wolverine is also really angry. And so they kill him off pretty quickly in the book. In X-Men, uh, like in the 90s, I think it's number number 95, if I'm remembering right, they're fighting Count Nefaria and the Animen. It's like the second issue after Giant Size. Thunderbird dies in an explosion because he gets pissed off and punches a ship, basically. And one of the things that makes this character really unique is outside of the Changeling, who nobody remembers and was never, that was a retcon, not part of the team. This was like a Gwen Stacy moment from the 70s, where a character dies and stays dead for a long time there's been a lot of like honorariums they they name their ship the thunderbird and at certain points and they have honorariums to this character who was lost uh so he was the guy that never came back until he did and that's been very recent now he has come back from the dead a couple times in some various stories but he always dies again but one special thing i want to mention about thunderbird is if we go back to 1986 this is when classic x-men started and they started reprinting Claremont's early work. And Claremont would write a backup story to go with each one. So in uh, in Classic X-Men, we get an issue where it features the death of Thunderbird as the main story. And then there's a backup story where we see the X-Men attending Thunderbird's funeral. Uh, we meet Neil and Maria, who are his parents. We see his brother James there. Uh, we see his funeral. We also learn he was a veteran and a Marine. And it kind of gives some complexity to this character that was missing originally. Then in 2022, uh, Steve Orlando, who's my friend, and Nyla Rose, who is a Native American transgender professional wrestler, <laughs> wrote Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird number one, in which Thunderbird gets resurrected on Krakoa, is given a new costume that is designed by a Native artist, and it picks up on a lot of plot lines from Thunderbird's story, including the issue that we're about to read, X-Force Minus One, which is one of his very first appearances. Uh, so any thoughts on Thunderbird before we move on to Warpath, who I love? Okay. <laughs> no, sorry. I was trying to the mute button. I was just, I was so fascinated listening. I just, um, Thunder, again, like I said, I, I've had always had problems with Thunderbird over, over, over Warpath. I'm happy to see him back because I'm, I'm really excited what the future for Thunderbird is. And hopefully in the right writers, we're going to get some really good stories with him. So I'm, I'm really excited what the future holds. Uh, now let's talk about Warpath because it turns out John had a brother. Uh, his name is James Proudstar. He's also a mutant. He also has a similar power set, except he can fly and has like enhanced senses. But Thunderbird also kind of has that. Both are super strong and are faster than normal. Uh, James joined the Hellions, who is Emma Frost's new mutants team at the Massachusetts Academy. And he took the name Thunderbird for himself to honor his older brother. This is 1984. It's New Mutants number 16. Then in 1985, in Uncanny X-Men 193, James, or Thunderbird 2, tries to get revenge on the X-Men for his brother's death, but he makes peace with the team, kind of. Then we'll fast forward to 1991. It's New Mutants number 99. The book's getting ready to be relaunched as X-Force. Uh, Rob Leifeld and Fabian Nicieza are bringing Thunderbird in. He's dressing in a very Native American costume. There are feathers, there are reds and blues, and the Thunderbird insignia. Uh, James's entire family and people were wiped out while he was gone. Uh, strife is behind it. That's a long story that we won't take time. It's Cable's evil clone. Uh, but he takes the name Warpath 
and joins this paramilitary group X-Force. And over the several years between then and 1997, which is where we're picking the book up, he's gone on a pretty big journey. He's formed a lot of relationships. He's really been fleshed out. He's a character that's beloved to a lot of people as outside of Danny Moonstar, the, the most mainstay Native American member of the team. But he's also just a really sexy, powerful, incredible character who I have a lot of affection for. Uh, are you guys Warpath fans? I am. I, 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 Warpath is cool and was cool. Again, like I said, my era... When I started reading, reading, I started X Force One, and there, there he is, and so it's this, this str- strong-looking Native American character, and I'm like, oh, this book's for me. I'm, I'm, I'm in, and so I liked him. I dug him the whole time. I, I with, and he was written a lot better than his brother was. So- <laughs> <laughs> It was the 90s. The different. It time. was the 90s, and it, and it was like Native American with an edge, because you know, in the 90s, everything was extreme and you know, edgy, and it was, but it was great. It was, it was great, and I, I, I didn't feel as disrespected as I did when I was reading, you know, when I went back and read, read older issues of, well, X Men back in back before, you know, back in the time. And Sarah, do you have any Warpath thoughts? Oh, I mean, I'm. How could I not be a fan after that introduction and description? I. <laughs> and I just I I like Scotty said I love characters that were part of that like extreme uh what I think of as the Mountain Dew era. Um <laughs> <laughs> I just do any, the do any, any of that I how feel big like, can my pouches be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, really just taking cargo pants to the extreme. Um how could I how could I not? Uh, but wait, I get to introduce one more of my favorite characters to you, although she's not really prominent in this issue. We also get to talk about Tabith- Tabitha Smith or Boom Boom. Uh, Tabitha is, and I say this with absolute affection, kind of trailer trash. She's the question of like, what if Jubilee went like a little bit wrong? <laughs> she's an irreverent bad girl. She makes mutant time bombs to sow chaos She checks herself out in the mirror and she fucks her teammates and she drinks a lot and she is messy and I love her for it in almost everything she's ever been in. Uh, She had an abusive father and she ran away from home at 13. And the first time we ever see her is in Secret Wars 2 in 1985. And she's a teen runaway who then ends up with the X-Factor students before going on to join the New Mutants and then X-Force. She's also been part of Next Wave, and most recently and most gloriously in Leah Williams's Exterminators. So if you've read that, you know this character, and she's amazing. I need Exterminators uh, to be an ongoing, because that, that was brilliant. That was a great book. God, it's so good. I would love more. We talk about it on this show a shocking amount. Like, we we really love this book. Uh, Tabitha, we see at age, uh, like, 11 in this book. Uh, very briefly, she's included in the story when she's still living with her, like, drunk, abusive father. Uh, so we get to talk about Boom Boom very briefly. But these are all characters that I can't wait uh, to get to on my show eventually. Uh, do either of you have Boom Boom thoughts? I mean, her name's Boom Boom. <laughs> I've always loved Tabitha. Tabitha's great. And again, since we just mentioned it, I just like to talk about it. She's amazing in Exterminator. So if you've not read it, read it go out and get it. Uh, I, I need more. I really need more of that book in my life. Uh, Sarah, have you read Exterminators? No, but I will tell you right now, I love a mess. I love mess. I love drama that doesn't involve me and I love a mess. And so this character feels already uh right at home in my heart i'm still getting to know you but you will love exterminators let me set one scene for you from exterminators they are in a coliseum surrounded by vampires and boom boom needs to distract them so she unties her dress 
and lowers it and you can't see her breasts but her breasts then throw out time bombs and the caption says boom boom <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> i mean who among us has not been there <laughs> it's a solution to any problem <laughs> uh, so the other thing that makes this issue that we're going to review today really special, having introduced these characters now and told you a lot about them, Warpath and Thunderbird have never met. His brother died. Years later, Warpath becomes a beloved member of this team. But this issue, this flashback, shows us an interaction between these two characters. Warpath is the legacy character after Thunderbird, but we've never seen them meet in a comic book before. So when you go to the cover of this book and it says, this is it, the team up you demanded but never thought you'd see, the Proud Star Brothers together again for the first time. That's what we're talking about. Thunderbird is shown in his classic costume, Warpath in the costume he was wearing at the time, which is the like dark purple with the yellow chaps. Uh, and then we get to see the younger versions of them. Uh, we get to see John in his uh, Marine uniform sitting on uh, the <laughs> unconscious body of Edwin Martinick, who we'll talk about in a minute, with, uh, with his brother James at his side. So this issue is special for that reason. And it's really carefully and beautifully written. Uh, John Francis Moore is the writer here. Moore is famous for a lot of books outside of Marvel, but at Marvel itself, he's written X-Factor, Factor X, both Doom 2099 and X-Men 2099, the limited series X-Men Phoenix. He's also writing X-Force in this era. And I'm actually a big fan of this guy. I would love to have John on the show sometime. Uh, Adam Polina is the penciler. I love Polina's style. We got to talk about him a lot in my episode with Shelby Criswell, all about Angel Revelations. Uh, and then the inking team here is Mark Morales, John Holdridge, and Al Milgram, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on Letters, and Mark Powers on Edits. Uh, either uh, uh, Any comments from the two of you on the cover of this book before I introduce this? Uh, I love so... the art style. Uh, I love the I love the art style in this. This what's great about this is that it's 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 modern for the time, but it has that good throwback look. So it looks like you could have read this in in, in the sixties or seventies. So uh, you know, I really really dig. It. I love the color scheme. Uh, it's great, Sarah. Yeah, I'm all about this cover. I love um, I love these costumes. I'm so about the Chaps era of superhero costuming. I love this cheeky little lapel and then the bateau neckline. Like we're really giving some fashion here, um, which I appreciate. And then I just, I always love a cover that has like, this is, this is your superhero larger than life version immediately contrasted with your very human version of yourself. Um, it just, it just makes me happy. I just love it. There is also a, love Oh, go ahead. No. I also love I love the fact that it has a sign. It's like this is it because you demanded it. I love that gimmick. It's a great it's a great fun gimmick. So <laughs> it makes you want to just take it off the newsstand. Yes, I did demand this, or I didn't know I wanted this, but now I do. Yeah, I I really love this issue. Uh, I want to mention two more tropes very quickly, and we'll handle this delicately as needed. Number one. White writers in particular have a habit of portraying life on the reservation as uh, people stricken by poverty, people stricken with like unhappiness, lots of alcoholism and abusive parents. And the portrayal of the Proud Star family in this issue is that they are a very happy, put together, lovely family unit. And I love that we break that stereotype uh, already. 
Second, there's a long history, and we'll mention this briefly, but I'm happy to engage in conversation if anyone wants to talk. There's a long history of the United States government experimenting on and or manipulating people from disenfranchised populations, including queer people, including disabled people, including Black people and immigrants, and also including Native Americans. And we do get a culturally sensitive story in this book, uh, about the Heritage Heritage Initiative and Edwin Martinick, who are manipulating Native American people. These characters have been picked up in the giant size X-Men uh, Thunderbird story that we talked about, as well as in the modern Krakoa storylines based on Orcus. This is evil organization has allied itself with Orcus. And the Thunderbird story that we see in the giant size issue I just referenced by Steve Orlando and Nyla Rose directly picks up the characters or the villains from this story and brings them into the modern times. Uh, Scotty, do you have any comments on anything I just talked about? I hope I'm handling this in a delicate manner. I think you're handling it in a very appropriate manner and a very yeah, you're you're doing good on this. Absolutely right. And 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 I'm double fold actually. You know, things like this happen happened here in Alabama. We've we've got the fam most famously the Tuskegee experiments. Yeah. Uh, then which is not too far from where we're at now. And so if you don't know about those, definitely read up on, on about that. What the U.S. government done, not just the Native Americans, but other marginalized people in this country. It's yeah. not been a great history, guys. <laughs> Up to and including the sterilization of populations yeah, and the forced, the forced reparative therapy approaches uh, on, on queer people, et cetera, et cetera. There's a long histories that go across the board. But Native Americans have a unique and painful history when it comes to a lot of manipulations by the government. And we acknowledge that these guys are the bad guys in this story and the Native Americans are the heroes, which is one important thing to set out. And I really love this story overall. Uh, Sarah, any thoughts here? Oh, I mean, I think that you both covered it pretty thoroughly. I mean, the American government historically just has had a long love affair with eugenics. Um, and this comic, again, in the context of its time, I was reading it and thinking, oh, this is probably a pretty radical acknowledgement of that for the for the time period when this was being written. So, yeah, I think. I think you covered it. Okay, so we get to be nerdy now and we'll <laughs> leave all the serious stuff out. Uh, every one of these Flashback Month issues opens with Stan Lee in some awkward costume, acting all weird. He's dressed as a circus barker. He's dressed as Chamber in one issue. He's dressed... This is the only Stan Lee appearance that I like, actually, from all of the Flashback Month. We're, like, deep in the Southwest and uh, Stan Lee's sitting with a guitar and a giant cowboy hat. He's got a bull and a horse and a bunch of, like, wildlife all around him there's a there's a fox it's like very looney tunes uh and he's talking in a southern drawl here's where i'll let it come out i'm gonna read his uh howdy partner here's your old buckaroo buddy stan sagebrush lee strumming his heart out for you got a yahoo of a yarn that'll sizzle your saddle and curl your colts so drop them gun bolts and set <laughs> jeez so drop them gun bolts and set a spell your rawhide wrestling rapscallions. I'm singing about two good old red-blooded brothers, James and John Proudstar. Of course, later, later on, you'll know them as Warpath and Thunderbird, till old Thunderbird gives his life for the X-Men pards. As, few, as for Warpath, what happened to his brother will haunt him forever and then some. But for now, we're luckier in a spotted hog and a pile of mud, because we're going to get... I can't take myself seriously because we're going to get a shot at seeing Warpath and Thunderbird together again as they battle to save their tribe and their kinfolk from, but shoot, no need to gnash my gums telling you uh, when uh, when it's all waiting down the road, uh, road a piece in the pages ahead. So gallop to it, hombres. It's all yarn. Seltzer, y'all. <laughs> There's something very Dolly Parton about it. I don't know. I find this charming and annoying at the same time. 
I will say I have lived in the South my entire life, and I've never heard luckier than a spot hog in a pile of mud. <laughs> I feel like we need to bring that into the the new slang. You know, uh, we're, kind of like on the, we're on the tail end of calling things cringe and based, and I feel like we can ramp up into spotted hog territory. Get some young people on that. <laughs> Make it a hashtag. <laughs> the opening of this book introduces the logo from Thunderbird's costume, which we're going to spend some time on here. It's called The Brothers Proud Star, and I love this story, and I love this art. Uh, okay, let's jump in. On uh, on the beginning of the book, we see 11-year-old James Proudstar looking for his cat named Coyote, who has run up a tree. He's wondering if old man Trueheart's dog went after him again. He's on the Apache Reservation in Camp Verde, Arizona, which is literally a base that X-Force will live in later. And this is the place where uh, John's people are later slaughtered, John and James's people. The caption says, like many boys his age, he longs for a life of adventure and danger. Soon he will learn the cost of such a wish. In another few years, James's senses will heighten dramatically, allowing him to distinguish the faintest sounds and most terrible, or excuse me, most subtle smells. He will possess strength and speed beyond that of an ordinary man. This night, however, he remains blissfully unaware of the strange creature looming behind him. And there's a crazy beast that's approaching, but the cat jumps out and slashes the creature in the eyes, which gives James a chance to run. James knows the canyon well, so he's able to get back to his isolated home and then runs right into his big brother, John, who is returning a uh, uh, from his time away with the Marines. John says, where do you think you're going, Runt? He says, you, you're back. Yep, got my walking papers two days ago. I'm a civilian now. It turns out John's been gone for two years. And now James tells him about the monster, but John doesn't believe him. Next time you run into any monsters, run. Tell him your big brother said to leave you alone because I'm the only one who gets to pick on you. We then get to jump into their family life. We meet their mom and dad. We meet their grandfather. And by the way, Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird number one, which I keep referencing, introduces their grandmother, who is just this angry, spitfire, lovely woman. And I love Nyla Rose's portrayal of that character. She's the member of the family we don't see here. And they're happy. They're serving a whole feast. They're bantering back and forth and enjoying each other's company. Uh, we get reference to uh, their father, Mr. Proudstar's time in the army away. We get grumpy grandma, grandpa on the corner. Uh, it, it turns out Mr. Proudstar was drafted into the war, but John talks about how he wanted to get off the reservation and see the world and prove himself as a true Apache. And I love this idea of uh, when when it's delicately told, I love this idea of uh, characters that latch onto their culture in this way. This character saying, I want to prove myself is not a problem if it's part of his character and it's something he's holding on to. It's sort of like when Sunfire calls himself a samurai. If we're telling it correctly, it's not a problem. But when we're telling it incorrectly, it could become a really big problem. We jump outside to where John is having a nice quiet moment with his mom. He can't sleep. He wanted to go out and look at the stars. He says, all the stars are back where they finally should be. When I was overseas, everything was turned around. I never felt comfortable like I belonged. She says, I'm glad you made it back safely. He says, you know, Ma, I almost didn't make it back. I never told you because I didn't want to worry you. We were skirting a thunderstorm on our way back to Guantanamo when the storm shifted unexpectedly. Lightning hit one of our enemies and we nosedived into the Caribbean. I managed to get the pilot and myself into a lifeboat, but the waters were rough. I figured we'd probably drown before anyone could rescue us. Then, suddenly, the sky opened up with a roar of thunder, and I swear I could, I, excuse me, and I saw, I could swear I saw a great bird of lightning above me. 
that signaled the storm's end and I knew everything was okay. I bet grandpa would say I'd finally found my totem. And it doesn't say this directly, but you get the idea that this is where he chose the name Thunderbird for himself, this bird in the sky made of thunder. Uh, let's hear your thoughts on the story thus far, and especially on this scene or this flashback we get about John uh, in combat and seeing the Thunderbird. Uh, Scotty, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I this this scene, uh, this, this this last thing we talked about. You know, it starts with with John Prowsar is restless, and we know that he left to go find himself, be this proud Apache warrior. And I don't think in his journey, he found that. I also don't think he found it would have found himself four years later back to where he was. And so I, he seems like he is lost as he started his journey and as, and is still lost when he come back. So I think he's like, he's here trying to cope with all of this. And then, you know, talking to his mother and, and telling him, uh, telling her about, his his adventures were you know when reality really sets in for him and then he sees this thunderbird which i think and it really leads him back home and so uh i just i thought it was really really fascinating i just i got a, i got a sense that the it came full circle for him where he he just ends up back where he started yeah i really appreciated what again for the time period i think is an incredibly nuanced perspective on military uh, service where we're seeing people who resent the U.S. military who have been forced to participate in U.S. military service who have chosen to participate in it and this experience this you know um, helicopter being shot down and being you know having your life threatened is not presented as particularly um, honorable and exciting and thrilling and it's also not presented as particularly uh, exploitative it's presented as pretty straightforward trauma which you don't necessarily get a lot of that representation of what life in the military is like in uh i think comics in general but especially in like the last 10-15 years absolutely we do get mention as well i want to just note the interior of the proud star home it's small we don't get a lot of visits uh images but they're having dinner together they're laughing about their time there's pictures on the wall there's decorations there's a baseball cap hung up we also get a mention from uh from mr proud star that when he was in the army he served under thunderbolt ross who is the famous hulk character that goes on to become the red hulk this is the betty banner's dad uh that's the the j jonah jameson to the hulk's bruce banner <laughs> in a lot of ways so that's kind of a fun marvel dive there as well right after john talks about his experience in the war his mother mentions that she has been diagnosed with cancer and so the next day john goes with his mother to uh to the clinic locally where she has been diagnosed and he meets a guy named edwin martinick now, this guy is a, is a problem. He's a white guy with a ponytail, he's a little skinny thing. And he's diagnosed uh, John's mother with chronic lymphotic le leukemia. John asks, says, is it terminal? And she says, we're gonna, he says, we're going to have to give her radiation and chemotherapy. But sitting outside is a character that we will later uh, be, that will later be identified as Michael Whitecloud. He's a local reporter. Uh, then we switch over to Interstate 40, where little Tabitha Smith is sitting in the back of a uh, of a station wagon that's rolling down the road. The songs that are playing here, and I actually took time to listen to these last night to properly set the mood, are Muskrat Love and Mama Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. And she is so bored. She's in like day nine of vacation mode. Her dad and his new wife 
are just arguing back and forth. Come on, Lou. We've been listening to that country and Western garbage for two days. I happen to like Willie Nelson, Mandy. Oh, please. When did you turn into the urban cowboy? And Tabitha is sitting in the back like, if I knew how to steal a car, I would just get out of here. Because I don't know why they even got married. They're always screaming at each other or me. And then the family stops at a carnival. And while they're at the carnival, they're looking around. Tabitha is here. Their parents are still arguing. And John and James are excited to be hanging out together. But John leaves James alone because he sees uh, Susie Littlewing, a girl he used to know, apparently, and wants to go flirt with. And so James has to go off on his own. Girls. <laughs> so that's kind of the intro of the book. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Tabitha's introduction in the backseat? Do you guys have any memories of very long car rides? Well, your parents listened to terrible music and yelled at each other? Because <laughs> I do. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did a. We did the trips from from you know South Alabama to Atlanta to Six Flags. So yeah, I know how that went. Uh, also, Muskrat Love is amazing. So I was I was like <laughs> I was happy to see it included. And it was it was funny the first time I read this, uh, I didn't catch it was was Boom Boom at first, and I was like, why does that name seem familiar? And then it, the second reading, I was like, oh, I get it now. I get it. And I love how they allude to how. Like all she wants to do is to learn how to drive and steal a car, which kind of goes into her runaway path. She's already plotting her way out out of this situation. I, I love all these little layers they're they're adding in this book. Subtle and amazing. Uh, Sarah, any thoughts? Yeah, I I mean I loved this. I did not know that I was reading the backstory of Tabitha when I was reading this. I was just like, I don't know who this little girl is, but she's cool as hell. Uh, the the immediate reaction to troubling circumstances being theft is something that I identify with quite closely, just immediately going to crime to try and get yourself out of a pickle. Um, I'm a fan. You did You did write a story called Be Gay, Do Crimes Once. I mean, <laughs> I've got a type. <laughs> uh, Sarah, will you take us through the next section of the book? Tell us what happens at the carnival. Oh, I would be thrilled to. So... Uh, we've got Michael Whitecloud uh, pays for John Proudstar's soda with what looks like $2, even though the soda only costs 75 cents. So we know he's a generous tipper. Um, but really what he's paying for is John's time and attention because he's an investigative reporter and he has reason to believe that Mama Proudstar's cancer results are being faked. Uh, a place called Arroyo Laboratories turns out to be the place where, quote, every Apache and Camp Verde diagnosed with cancer in the last three years has had their lab work sent, which on the one hand, suspicious. On the other hand, that is kind of how medical care works in remote areas. Um, but okay, it's suspicious. I think easily the best art on this page is in panel six. Uh, John has some incredible cleavage in the foreground. And in the background, there's some guy with cut cheekbones who just has a snake around his neck. Um, no context needed. That's how it is at the carnival, I guess. We then get to see Tabitha looking at a tiger who is mad for, you know, tiger in a big cage reasons. Um, a nearby carnival worker says that the tiger's too temperamental, but Clem, the tiger's boyfriend, says, no, he understands me and we need to be together. The tiger's, um, the tiger's I, name is Kimba, and I would be pissed too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then we get a little digression um, that... Chad or Scotty, I'm hoping one of you have context for. Oh, I'm so ready. <laughs> John Do the Magician shows up for five panels of pretty much nothing. He's advertising his upcoming act. Um, and then we find out that his act isn't happening yet. 
And that's kind so, of yeah, all let we me, get from him. Let me take the reins for a second. We we learned that they are at the, and I quote, uh, the Tybalt uh, Carnival of Wonders. Maynard Tybalt, Tybalt is the ringmaster who is the infamous, uh, the leader of the circus of crime. This guy has a hat that can hypnotize people because he turns on a spinny light. And then he's got a whole team of like circus performers like the clown and Princess Python. And they go rob the audience and superheroes love to beat them up. And I fucking love the circus of crime. So we Maynard Tybalt is here. We also see the character Chandu the Magician. And here's the context you're looking for. Chandu the Magician is actually a real person. He's a guy that had a TV show way back when my mom was a kid. And the Chandu the Magician is the guy that uh, that Stan Lee saw and created Doctor Strange as a result because he loved this character. But later, Steve Gerber took a whole bunch of obscure Marvel characters. Uh, one of them is Chandu the Mystic, who's also based on Chandu the Magician. And he created a team of supervillains called the Headmen. One of them is a guy who has a human head on an ape body. One's a guy who... <laughs> His organs were shrunk, but his skin is all long and saggy. There are a bunch of real weird characters. One of them is one of my favorite all-time Marvel villains. Her name is Ruby Thursday. She just has a red fishbowl for a head, but it can like sprout arms and shit. And the fourth member of the team is Chandu the Mystic, who is this character whose head has been severed and he just floats around in like a little apparatus. He's just a head and he performs magic. Most recently, we've seen him in the Doctor Strange comics. He's the bartender at the like the sorcerer's bar. So this is just a flashback to they're just working in a weird, obscure Marvel guy, Ch Chandu the Magician, or uh, who who becomes Chandu the Mystic. Uh, so yes, there's context. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I'm thrilled. I was reading this and I was like, Chad's gonna know why the hell this is happening. Come to Grand Lane and get a whole education. <laughs> uh, keep so, going. All right, so uh, James bored and left on his lonesome wanders into a tent to have his fortune told uh the fortune teller inside is doing kind of your classic like uh appropriative amalgam of different fortune telling traditions in addition to pretending to be blind which is one of the most classic uh sketchy ableist tropes that we get it's handled pretty lightly here um, she foresees the future in which John will die. She gets kind of waked out by that, but doesn't tell James about it for reasons. Uh, she says, you know, people will take advantage of my powers if they find out that they're real. Um, Do you recognize this character? No, who, it's, who am I supposed to be recognizing? It's Destiny. No! Destiny, Irene Adler, uh, infamous for being Mystique's wife, a member of the Quiet Council. She is in this carnival working to support themselves for some reason, and she gets this deadly vision of a mutant dying in the future. She also crosses paths with Warpath, and she's very distraught. And as, as James leaves, Mystique pops out, although it's like a two-panel thing. Uh, Mystique says, you lied to the boy, Irene. You of all people truly have the gift of prescience. What did you really see in his future? And she says his brother's death. And then I sensed even more tragedy that would follow that loss. My foresight's no gift, Raven. Sometimes it's a terrible, terrible burden. Mystique says, let's go. Let it go, Irene. You've wasted too much of your talent in this two-bit carnival. And Irene says, I had no choice. There are far too many people in this world who would use my abilities for their own purposes. Mystique says, you'll never have to do this again, I swear. We have bigger things ahead of us. 
That's actually why I gave you this section, Sarah. It's mis- it's the it's the wives. <laughs> oh, you had best believe I saw Mystique and I said, "Oh, my god, my beautiful wife Mystique is here." Um and and I was thrilled I have it in my notes. Oh my goodness, Mystique so exciting. Um I, I, and I also I- find it interesting that she doesn't have her skulls here. Like Mystique always has her skulls and this one she does and she looks so interesting and uh, just alien without the skulls. That's just it's it's fascinating. She's cozy at home. This is the lesbian lifestyle. <laughs> you, get, you get to vibe out in your jammies in the back of a tent while your wife is hard at work uh, telling fortunes. So, James... These two, these two were still not allowed to come out in the comics at the time, but everyone was in on the joke because here we have them living in this little desert carnival together. They're so cute. I love them. They're really good <laughs> friends. Yeah, gal pals. Gal pals. It's just, it's just the gal pal lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> So James is not impressed. Um, he's like, you're not really telling my fortune. All right, I'm I'm out of here. He's so casual. I love how chill this kid is. Um, and then he reunites with his brother uh, in the first panel of this page outside the tent where action really heats up. Uh, James and John reunite. There's kind of a kind of a messed up looking guy in the foreground and just an elephant walking around in the background. Just a massive elephant you know i guess this is the carnival (laughs) elephants are want to do (laughs) yeah uh the tiger who we met earlier kimba is out of his cage it's a feral pussy (laughs) (laughs) he uh looks in no way like a tiger i love this this illustration style in which the tiger's coloring and stripes are not tiger like at all he's a carnival tiger um yellow and monochrome i don't know where they got him from but i do love his i love his rage uh james thinks that the tiger being out of the cage is really cool until the exact second he doesn't think it's really cool and now it's time for a good old-fashioned cat fight uh john steps in to wrestle this tiger who develops a like very human face he's very john is being very strong and muscular um Honestly, the tiger doesn't look like it's that interested in the fight, but John overpowers it, holds it back until a carnival worker can come and shoot it in the head. With a tranquilizer. Is that a tranquilizer? I f- yeah, for sure. I- it's like it's like embedded in his fur, right? Uh, it, there's also like a caption that mentions that John has become aware that he's getting stronger and faster over the last few years, but he doesn't know he's a mutant yet. And this guy loves to wrestle an animal, right? In Giant Size, he's fighting a buffalo. Here he's got a tiger. He's got, he's got a trope. <laughs> it's just, it's just you know, when you've, when you've only got big muscles and all your problems are animals, there's only one real solution and it's you got to wrestle them. <laughs> uh, Scotty, take us through uh, the next section. Uh, so, uh, um, John has, uh, successfully beat the uh, tiger. They've got it asleep. Everyone's looking at him and ooing and eyeing. And he's like, I don't want people looking at me like a freak. I'm just going to get out of here. Uh, and then the, um, head of the carnival, Mr. Uh, Maynard Tybalt shows up and says like, you're great. You would be a great addition to this, 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 uh, this carnival come join us. And he, he takes his card. It's like, I'll think about it. <laughs> It's called the, the business card says the ringmaster circus of delight. It'll later be replaced with the circus of crime. 
so we leave the carnival and we end up at our Royal Medical Laboratories where uh, John is having his Batman moment where he's climbing, scaling the wall and uh, sneaking in as one is wont to do. Um, he ends up meeting the reporter again here who's like, why'd you scale it? I've never seen one scale things so fast, but there, you could have just come this other way. And so they start sneaking around and looking around this laboratory and they see all these really cool lab stuff. Uh then they hear something, and then John senses something. He turns around, he's ready to beat down something, and he reaches into the shadows and pulls out his brother, James. And, of course, James is going to follow him. That's what little brothers do. <laughs> <laughs> little brothers follow big, big brothers. Uh, and so uh, they do the, why did you follow me? It's like, well, you know, it's a Tuesday. I needed something to do. And <laughs> um, they... Um, they look around, they find all these fetuses and all this weird experiments going on. And uh, the reporter, he's uh, he's going to take pictures. And he's like, yeah, take the, and he hears from behind him, take all the pictures you want because you're not going to leave with them. And you see Dr. Uh, Murtick, uh, and he's got uh, James hostage. And, of course, fighting ensues. Uh uh, the, the evil doctor is talking about, yeah, I've been using your people as guinea pigs. I'm really you know, interested in the in mutations. And since you, uh, your people is so close to atomic and nuclear testing, we think, you know, your DNA has been ir irradiated. And so, but also I've been experimenting on myself too, because I am an evil scientist and he turns into a monster. <laughs> and so they get into a big fight there. Uh, and to the point where um, John is holding down the monster and James comes and uh, shoots him with uh, Dr. Martik's gun. And uh, uh, let's see. Uh, so there's a long it, there's a long history of organizations in X-Men comics that are trying to appropriate mutant genes. Yes. I'm going to take the genes out. I'm going to splice them into my own. This is most famously explored with the really creepy human who will like take people's eyeballs out and put them in their own. So they have like mutant powers. But this idea of experimenting on people and then this guy's also turned himself into like a jaguar man uh, is something we're seeing Orcus do in the Krakoan era. So that's where these characters come back. Uh, and again, this story is very directly picked up in the Nyla Rose Steve Orlando issue I mentioned. Uh, yeah, yes. It's, it's just really interesting. Uh, the, the monsters, are, the monsters, this this is what surprised me most about this is that it's it's brief it's only like the monster fight's only like four panels and then it's it's over it's 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 just a quick 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 little fight um they uh call the police they they, they get everybody out of there and um the the monster uh the the, the doctor's like well um <clears throat> you're you know we, we, i know that you uh, john are are obviously genetically enhanced there's there's something going on with you. you you he doesn't quite use the word mutant but he knows there's something up with him and uh he wanted a uh uh he, he talks about when he uh when his mother was younger that uh, was exposed to a fallout from the government test and uh i want to see uh if that exposure affected her children so now he's really interested in him and this and is a trope that's picking up on the stuff from the early X-Men where a lot of characters were like, the reason you're a mutant is because your mom or dad was exposed to radiation or near this atomic blast, which is another interesting thing here. And we also have direct reference historically. Of, uh, for example, if you guys have seen the movie Oppenheimer, which is actually really great, one story that it leaves out is there were native people who were exposed to radiation from these blasts during those tests that ended up with cancer and long-term problems as a result. Yeah, so. 
they yeah. mentioned it once is like there's some natives living here we can move them away and then i was like but <laughs> to this story yeah <laughs> um the fight goes on and it ends up with uh the, the the whole building being exploded they don't know uh they can't find any bodies they don't know what's going uh, and it ends a week and, and later martin egg doesn't want his research exposed so he hits right the he, and then lights the lighter yeah he lights the lighters like he, he, he sets it sets it ablaze and then it ends a week later and we find out that uh uh, you know, John's been worried about the police showing up, but the police are not going to show up because the, the 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 company's not saying, oh, it was just an accident, and they never found any bodies. And the good thing is, is that his mother doesn't have cancer, and that was all a lie. And so, uh, it ends with the boys uh, playing ball, and it's a, a very sweet moment between between both of them. And then that Thunderbird uh, symbol is so about the end again in the the end. Yeah. Now the character Michael Whitecloud we do see during this writer's run on X Force, as well as the cat Coyote gets referenced because Warpath's kind of going through a journey, uh, and so this writer picks up both of those characters uh, again. I love this issue. I love the characters. I love the portrayal. What are kind of some of your concluding thoughts as we wrap up our conversation here? The uh, the brief showing up of Chandu and Ringmaster and Mystique and Destiny. It just like makes it even more magic for me. I, I love this story. Uh, Sarah, any final thoughts? Oh, I thought that this issue was a blast. I mean, and having the added context now of understanding who a couple of the characters I didn't recognize were, it it's really just packed with like a lot of little treats. Um, and it's fun. It's I really love a monster story combined with a scientific conspiracy story combined with an origin story combined with all these side characters. It's like, it's just like a, I don't know. It's like a perfect little meatball. Yeah. I really love it. Uh, Scotty, how about you? Any final thoughts? I I love it. It's a, it's a good story. It's not heavy handed. It, it's informative. It, it shows a, a different light to, to some American history. So, you know, some, some people can look deeper into, however, it's peppered with like, who knew Tabitha was going to show up and here, and here's destiny mystique. And it's so much fun. It's, and it re- makes you realize, and, you know, I say this all the time is how wor- small the world actually is. And that, that, you know, who knew that Tabitha, you know, saw John in the distance or James in the distance years before they would actually end up on a team together. And that stuff is so fun. And, and you know, that like mystique and destiny are going to end up on, on some kind of crazy adventure next as they, after they, they're leaving the, the carnivals, you know, destiny says, I've got plans for us. And I'm like, Ooh, I wonder what's going on there. So it's, it's a lot of fun. The monster plus stuff is very fun. I wish it was a little bit more. There's like, so there's a, it's, Four panels over here, three panels over there, and it's very, very, very brief. But we got. I would have liked a little. I like to. I would like to probably like maybe four or five more pages to this book. But I understand back then you can only you have so much room. We got a tiger fight. Uh, we also got the mention of Thunderbolt Ross, and at the very end, as White Cloud's leaving, he's like, "Hey, I heard about a gamma bomb that's going to be tested. I'm going to go over there and report on that next." Yeah. Uh, my do. favorite part of this issue, if I had to choose, the meeting of the two brothers is really special. The portrayal of their home life, but my favorite scene is the reference for the Thunderbird uh, code name that that John will later choose for himself. Although he was dead dead 25 years before this issue came out, <laughs> so uh, the the shared universe concept and the building continuity is what makes these flashback month specials uh so fun 
Uh, this has been a delight. I, I've, I've loved hanging out with you both and uh, interviewing Jed was uh, was amazing. Uh, we are recording this on August 8th and it won't come out until September 11th. So I'm a little bit ahead on the show. Thanks everybody for being patient with that as we as we put these out. Uh, but by the time we uh, we release this episode, I will have come and gone to FlameCon, which I'm leaving for 48 hours after this recording, but it, I will have been back for three weeks before it comes out. <laughs> but I'll, I look forward to sharing a lot of FlameCon stories on the show uh, as we as we get there. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, where can people find each of you online? And what would you like to plug, recognizing we're putting this out on uh, September 11th? Uh, Scotty, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, you can find me at uh, on uh, on all the socials at Scotty White. I'm Twitter, Instagram, Scotty O'White. Uh, you can follow my comics work at Ninja Mop Studios uh on on all the you know all the instagrams or tiktoks or whatever we're all on everything um my comic book will have been successfully kickstarted by now so yay for that so chronicles limo number two uh will be successfully funded and uh, we're steady working on number three so check everything out on at chronicles look if you like native americans if you like science fiction if you like toddlers with magic powers come read our book it's gonna be fun you'll love it uh, Scotty, I love your vibe. I, it's been so fun chatting, and I'm so happy to meet you, man. I can't wait to hang out again. This oh, is let's do it again. I love it. Come on our show. Have fun. Talk to me. Like have a blast. Come on in by any time. I'll be there. <laughs> and uh, Sarah. Yeah, so uh, I don't even know how to follow that. That's so good. Um, I'm Sarah Gailey. You can find me on uh, Instagram, Blue Sky, and very rarely on Twitter um, under my name, Sarah Gailey. Uh some places underscore Sarah Gailey. You'll know me by the chaotic energy. And uh, as this is coming out, we're going to be coming up to the release of the collected Know Your Station, uh, the comic that I co-wrote with Liana Kangas, um, who's an incredible artist. Um, sorry, uh, the comic that I co-created with Liana Kangas, who's the incredible artist on the series. And that's going to be coming out in September. So pick it up wherever you get your comics um, or wherever you get your books. Uh, Sarah, it's great to see you again. I will plug for you. I got to I got to talk to you before this was announced, but they've announced your White Widow limited series coming out, which having met you, I know is going to be incredibly delightful. Uh, you writing Florence Pugh as Yelena Belova <laughs> is going to be amazing. And I only I can only hope it's the first of many, many announcements to come. I love your work. Do you want to tell us about White Widow at all? Oh my gosh, yes. So White Widow, Yelena Belova... Um, is a character who MCU fans will recognize from the Black Widow movie as portrayed by Florence Pugh and who Black Widow comics fans will recognize um, from the comics as Yelena. Um, and I'm getting to write a four-issue mini for Marvel uh, introducing Yelena in her own right. She is her own character and her own person, not in the shadow of the Black Widow, but living her own life. Um, and frankly, I... I'm having a blast with this series, and I hope that fans of Elena will love it, too. She is a fun character when written well. Sometimes you're like, what are they doing? Like when they turned her into the super adaptoid for a while? That was weird. <laughs> hopefully it was hopefully just her the turn. thing I'm doing will be a little better than the super adaptoid. <laughs> uh, lastly, I am Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the two of you are welcome to add me. 
The next episode coming out immediately after this will be our final flashback month review. And we've been doing these kind of intermittently throughout on the podcast throughout. So it's exciting for me anytime I get to close the chapter. We just wrapped up the hidden years. Now we get to wrap up flashback month, which means we are on to new content. And I'm always thrilled about that. Uh, the next episode is going to be about Wolverine minus one, which features a Wolverine, Ben Grimm, Carol Danvers story that also involves Sabretooth and some adamantium crazies and also people from Alpha there's a lot going on in this issue but it's fun uh featuring the incredible talents of ryan panagos uh and i'm welcoming christy porter and jason lowe to the show as well uh the next patreon episode after this will feature the really oh sarah this is a character you would love this is a messy chaotic crazy uh sienna blaze with uh my friend arturo rojas uh and that's gonna be fun <laughs> so we will get there uh then and we've got plans uh extending into later in the year which i'm really excited about so i will keep you all posted uh thank you jed thank you sarah thank you scotty we will see you all back here next time on Grim Austin. Thank you for listening to Graymalk and Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Graymalk and Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.